0: Uh, today, we're going to deal with the last four chapters of uh, Tractate Brachot. Um, and to make uh, that a little more manageable, it's not terribly manageable uh, under any circumstances, to four do four, track, four chapters of, uh, of Mishnah in one morning. But to make it a little more manageable, we're going to break it up, not exactly symmetrically. The first three chapters are going to be the... Uh, subject of the first part of the morning and the second part of the morning. We'll deal with the last chapter which will wrap up not only this section but wrap up Tractate Brachot. I see some new faces who who haven't uh, studied the first five chapters uh, together with us but uh, uh, don't worry you'll pick up enough of what went on in those chapters to be able to follow today's subject. Uh, course, that's not saying you'll pick up everything that we did in the last two days that uh, that uh, we won't be able to cover in the course of the morning, but uh, uh, we'll, you'll, you'll be able to get a bit of a taste of some of the things that we did through the way in which the end of the tractate sort of wraps up different topics and themes that came up uh, earlier on in the tractate. Okay, the uh, subject Uh, Up until now, tractate brachot, chapters 1 through 5, have dealt with um, mitzvot that basically we normally associate, at least, with uh, with communal prayer, with uh, with a shul, a synagogue. Um, We're going to be dealing today with uh, brachot, benedictions, that are recited not necessarily in the framework of a synagogue. On the contrary that are uh, recited in other frameworks. Uh, the first framework is that of food, and that's what we're going to be dealing with uh, uh, in the first part of the morning. And chapter 9, we'll see, deals with a whole medley of other kinds of blessings. We'll talk about that later, uh, later in the morning. Okay, we'll start with uh, the Tosefta. of course. The Tasefta, I think, gives a very profound introduction to... Uh, um, uh, to the topic discussed in the Mishnah. I'll read it in the Hebrew and translate. Whoever wants can follow along in the English. A person shall not, should not uh, taste anything, partake of anything until he uh, recites a benediction. As it says, the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. Statement number two. <laughs> Whoever benefits from this world without a benediction okay, has trans, uh, transgressed or trespassed. The, the idea of ma'al actually is drawn from the area of, uh, of sacred objects. Hekdesh, things that belong to the temple, okay, are part of the uh, property belonging to the temple, are not open for any human uh, use. And if a person u- uses them, which is improper, that's called lim'ol, ma'al, mem ayin lamid. Okay, so whoever had, has benefit from this world without a bracha, it's as though he has misappropriated... Property belonging to Hekdesh, Property that is sacred. Until all of the mitzvot permit them to him. Or permit it to him. Okay? And that's a puzzling statement. We'll come back to it in a couple of minutes. A person should use his face, his hands and his legs only for the glory of His Maker, shen called for po'al Hashem l'ma'anehu. As it says, uh, all of the things that Hashem has done are uh, for His sake, for His sake with a capital H, of course. Okay, now, each one of these uh, three statements requires, uh, uh, requires some analysis. Let's just start off by noting something that we saw yesterday as well, uh, when we compared chapter 4 of the Mishnah to chapter 3 of the Tosefta, two parallel passages, that the Mishnah likes to jump right into the halachic discussion. That goes right back to the first chapter. We saw it in the first chapter as well. May matai karin et From when do we recite kriyat Shema in the evening? And uh, the uh, person who is not initiated into uh, the halachic discussion will say, what's kriyat Shema? And who says we're supposed to recite it in the evening? I mean, well, And the question I ask is, why does the Mishnah start in the middle of the subject? So, um, I can't give you one single answer to why the Mishnah likes to start in the middle of the subject. I think in each chapter, you have to look at things uh, uh, individually and see how things are structured. The first chapter, for example, we saw had a subtext. The subtext of the first chapter was day and night. How... Recital of Shema structures the Jewish conception of time. How you live during the day, how you perceive. Your time is structured by Kriyat Shema, and that's really the subtext. So you start off with a question about time because in a way the real subject of the chapter is not reciting Kriyat Shema. The real subject of the chapter is how reciting Kriyat Shema helps you to structure your perception of time. Okay, so that's one instance uh, of, of why the Mishnah will start in what seems to be the middle of a subject. Because the Mishnah, in fact, very often has underlying themes that are, in a way, more important to the Mishnah than the uh, pre- straight presentation of the, of the halachot. So, for example, if you take uh, the Rambam's Mishneh Torah or the Shulchan Aruch, you see both of them are structured in what seems to be a much more logical way than the Mishnes. Okay? They read logically. They read logically is another way of saying that to a contemporary Western mentality, that's the way we would want to write it. Okay? And it's not by accident. The Rambam was very heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. That's one of the pinnacles of the Western intellectual tradition. So the, the kind of orderly modes of thought characteristic, let's say, of Aristotle, uh, by whom uh, the, the Rambam was profoundly influenced, okay? that has a tremendous influence on the way in which the Rambam presents his halachic discussions. So we find that more congenial. It's easier for us to relate to that. Okay? We, we've been distanced from something that in many cultures, uh, hundreds and thousands of years ago, is not that uncommon, and that is that laws were presented in a literary format and were not always presented in a logical format of a legal code. Because today, you take a legal textbook, you expect it to have a logical structure. The Rambam corresponds to that. Okay, but there were, at one time, many cultures in which that was not the norm. If you wanted to get your legal information, you'd open up a book that had the structure, that had a structure that was closer to that of a poem than to that of an Aristotelian philosophical discourse. Okay, and the Mishnah reflects that. The Mishnah very often, even though overtly what it's doing is presenting a hal- a, a set of halakhot, okay, beneath the surface, okay, it's presenting a whole constellation of ideas that are alluded to by the structure, by the use of language by the use of literary allusions and wordplay, plays and, and, uh, and so on. These are some of the things that we've seen in the past couple of days. I'm trying to sort of bring it, uh, bring it together. We see it again uh, over here. The Mishnah jumps right into the topic. The Mishnah starts off by saying, over fruit of the tree you make this kind of benediction, over fruit of the earth you make that kind of benediction. And the whole question of what is a benediction, where do we know this idea of benediction from, on what is it based, that is not a question that the Mishnah asks, at least not overtly. Again, beneath the surface, you can often detect, and I think this is one uh, one of the cases where you can, you can often detect some of the underlying ideas, but the Mishnah uh, presents them in in a very different way, alludes to them, rather than, presenting them uh, up front, the way the Tosefta very often does. And very often when that happens, the Tosefta, in fact, plays the role of, okay, the Mishnah has jumped right into the fray, Okay, they've sort of plunged right into the deep water. Okay, We're going to take you by the hand, uh, starting from the shallow water, and take you up to the point where the Mishnah begins. And that's exactly what the Tosefta does here. That's exactly what the Tosefta that we studied yesterday did for prayer. Okay? Presented a kind of prefatory statement that gave us some of the background to fixed times for prayer. What is that notion? Where does it come from? Here, too, what is the notion of reciting a benediction over food that one eats? On what is it based and what does it mean? So the Tosefta gives us that introduction and tells us, The underlying concept for making a benediction before you eat is that the earth belongs to God. The earth and all the fullness thereof belongs to God, okay? and therefore we have to acknowledge that before we partake before we partake of the food. Now, just how seriously that notion is taken, uh, we can see from the second statement. Second statement, uh, presumably, is more chaotic than halachic, which is to say, it's not really giving you binding uh, halachic norms that, that, uh, from which you can't uh, deviate. It's probably giving you more of a kind of moral and ethical uh, statement, telling you this is the way you should regard it. This is the underlying meaning of it, even though the halachic terms are used somewhat loosely here. But nonetheless, it, it serves to give us an idea of how seriously the uh, how seriously the rabbis want us to take this notion of the whole earth belongs to God. <laughs> Whoever uh, derives benefit from this world, excuse me, without reciting a benediction, it's as though he had misappropriated holy objects. Okay? Why is that? Well, we just said in the previous statement that Shem HaRetzum The earth belongs to God. If the earth belongs to God, by definition that means the whole earth is sacred. To belong to God means to be sacred. Or perhaps we should reverse the equation and say the definition of being sacred means to be consecrated to God. Anything on this earth that is sacred is sacred only because it is consecrated to God belongs to God. Uh, this, by the way, is a, a very central notion of monotheistic belief. In pagan belief, to be sacred means something else. To be sacred means to be infused with divinity. It means to possess some kind of numinous divine quality. Okay? Because paganism believes that divinity can inhere in objects. But monothe- monotheistic belief Believes in a God who is transcendent. A God who is transcendent, even though He's also imminent. He dwells in the earth, but He dwells in everything equally. Uh, and, and in His essence, God transcends. Kay? He transcends anything on this earth. You cannot say that there is some object that is in and of itself divine. That is ipso facto a pagan notion, an idolatrous notion. So what does it mean to be sacred within a monotheistic framework? It can only mean to belong to God, to be consecrated to God. Okay? Now, what, what our Tosefta is in effect doing is, is sort of subjecting this theological analysis and saying, but everything belongs to God. Is there something on this earth that doesn't belong to God? God created the earth, and therefore it belongs to Him. It's the same, uh, the same way that if I... Uh, go and purchase materials and manufacture something, to whom does it belong? To me. That's what belonging means. Uh, that's the most fundamental concept of belonging as we understand it. So the whole earth does, in fact, belong to God. I and mean, we, we, we would know that even without citing the verse in Tehillim, LaShem Ha'aretzum Loa. Certainly now, uh, having cited that verse, it's very clear that the earth, in fact, does belong to God. Okay? So, therefore, any use on our part of anything on this earth is, in effect, using something that belongs to God. So, if we're going to take seriously the idea that anything that belongs to God is uh, interdicted from human use, so then we couldn't use anything. Okay? Now, the truth is that the doesn't go through this. The Talmud amplifies the discussion a bit by citing another verse. Okay? For, for this verse, there's an opposite verse. The opposite verse is something that uh, uh, we recited this morning and every other morning during Hanukkah we will be reciting this. The Haaretz Natan Livne Adam. The land was given, the earth was given to man. So, does the earth belong to God or does the earth belong to man? Fundamentally, it belongs to God, but God gave it to man. He granted it to man. Okay, so, uh, uh, one doesn't have to see these as contradictory, and yet the sages of the Midrash did see it as contradictory and suggested a solution. And the solution is the solution right here in the Tosefta. The earth belongs to God until man recites a blessing. When you recite a blessing, then what originally belonged to God now is given over unto you. Which is another way of saying that uh, God is perfectly happy to grant us the use of everything on the earth. That's why He created the earth. The whole earth was created for man's benefit. Just look at the first chapter of Breshit and you'll see it. Uh, written as, as, as plain as day. Right, The whole earth was created for man's benefit, but God leaves a string attached. The string attached is... As long as you acknowledge that it belongs to me. It's a bit paradoxical. When you acknowledge that it belongs to me, then uh, uh, then I'm perfectly willing to to grant you its use. Let me illustrate this maybe with a little anecdote. I'm sure uh, any of us here who is uh, old enough has had this experience. And I just happen to have had it recently. Not for the first time. I've had it with other children as well. Okay, but, you know, it's one thing when your child asks you if he can use the car. It's another thing when he assumes that the car is there for his use. Okay, in other words, uh, it's fine, use the car, but remember it's mine, you know. In other words, when, you know, when, when he says, can I use the car, and you say, yes, but I need it, he says, okay, so why should you get it instead of me? There's something wrong about that. Okay, when he, when he says, oh, you need it, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, manage, I'll manage without it. So then the next time you're perfectly willing to let him use the car. When you have this sort of confusion, okay, then, then that's a problem. Okay, we're God's children. God is perfectly happy to let us use his car. Okay, but we should first acknowledge that it's his car. Okay, when you say, Baruch Ata Hashem, Elokeinu HaOlam, Borei Priha Eitz, you are the one who created this fruit. You are the one who granted us this fruit. We are enjoying the fruit that you have bestowed upon us. Then God says, right on. Fine. No problem whatsoever. But if you have not acknowledged that, if you just use it and say, well, it's part of this world. It's here for the taking. Why shouldn't I use it? Okay? Then you are failing to acknowledge the fact that it belongs to God. And then God... Uh, rears up on his hind legs and says, "Uh-uh, not this way. You're using my property now, and that's illegitimate. Okay? When you acknowledge that it's mine, I let you have it, no strings attached any longer. Until you've acknowledged it, then 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 that's a problem. So that's the underlying idea of a uh, 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 of a benediction. Okay? Now, um, as we'll see. This is not just a question of uh, how we can sort of get around the problem of using something that's God's. Uh, it sounds like that as we'll see from the continuation of the Sephta's discussion. the issue of a blessing goes far beyond that. but before getting into that, there's a textual problem okay uh, some of you may may have noticed it, and if not, ask yourselves why not okay uh, that uh, I only translated half of section 2 of the Tosefta. And I omitted the second half of the statement. Okay? If nobody noticed that, so make a mental note that in the future, God will take the text more seriously and read it more carefully. Okay? And not let teachers pull the wool over your eyes by translating half of a statement. Okay? Uh, You're right. I'm not finished yet. Okay? Okay. don't trust teachers uh, always to pick up on those points. Okay, call them on the carpet, and if they're planning to get to it later, they'll be happy to tell you. But don't don't always trust them. Uh, n- not all teachers are, are as honest as I am, so uh, they won't always tell you that they uh, that they were pulling the wool over your eyes. Okay. Whoever has benefit from this world without a bracha has. Uh, Has transgressed, in other words, has misappropriated divine property. That's only half the sentence. The the next half is until all of the mitzvot permit it. What's that? What mitzvot are we talking about? How are they permitting the use of the, the 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 benefit from from this world and in particular, there seems to be a syntactical problem here. Okay? I could, uh, I could visualize this sentence in two ways, and each way would make sense. One way is the way I read it before. That's a complete and coherent sentence. I could construct another complete and coherent sentence like this notice I left out the words below, bracha. whoever has uh, whoever benefits from this world has misappropriated divine property I left out the words below bracha, without a benediction until all of the commandments permitted to him I'll still have to explain what all the commandments are but at least I've made a coherent sentence but the way the sentence reads, there seem to be two completely different things that take uh, um, that take benefiting from this world out of the category of uh, of misappropriation of divine property. One of them is the bracha, the other one is all of the mitzvot. And in fact, uh, one of the uh, per- per- perhaps the major Tosefta commentator uh, Rav Shaul Lieberman in his uh, monumental Tosefta Kivshuta has suggested that perhaps what has happened here is a conflation of two different sources. And if you look in parallel sources to the Tosefta, you can in fact see uh, you can in fact see each of these sentences independently. So he says it looks like the Tosefta has conflated two sources, which is usually the sign of some kind of scribal error. In other words, perhaps, okay, just to suggest one possible reconstruction, <speaking in Hebrew> okay, whoever benefits from this world has misappropriated divine property until all of the mitzvot permit it, and then perhaps the, tose- the Tosefta redactor was bothered, well, where's the notion of benediction here? Where's the bracha? And so he thought, oh, yes, there's this statement, So he threw it in. So somehow or other, these two sentences became conflated and created a uh, a syntactical monstrosity. Okay? In which it's not really clear what is permitting the use of this world. Is it all of the mitzvot? Or is it the bracha? Lieberman uh, suggests uh, quite shrewdly that that's not what happened here. I mean, it may be that there is a conflation of two sources, but it wasn't by accident. There is, in fact, a coherent statement being made here. And the way to understand it is, first of all, to think about what are all of the mitzvot. Well, there are two ways of reading all of the mitzvot. All of the mitzvot, probably initially, refers to a whole series of agricultural commandments that a person is required to perform before he, he can actually put food on his table. Okay, so for example, you have to be careful that when you plant the uh, the, the produce, you don't plant it as kilayim, okay, as uh, as mixed species. Okay, you have to be careful that when you're harvesting, that you leave the appropriate gifts for the poor, that you uh, 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 set aside the first fruits and bring them up uh, to the temple as you're required to, that after harvesting, you set aside the appropriate tithes for the Kohen, for the Levi, and so on. Okay, these are all of the commandments. So we have, I think, a very coherent statement that in order to permit your consumption of the food, you have to fulfill all of those commandments. And those commandments really are also acknowledging divine sovereignty. Okay? In other words, when God says you can use it, but after you've given to A, B, C, and D, it's His way of saying it's really mine. Okay? And when I've acknowledged, when God says, okay, this is my list of people for whom I want you to leave it, and I then uh, leave this for that one and donate this to that one, the way He commanded, that's my acknowledgement of His divine sovereignty. And then... uh, and then God says, now it's open Now it's open for, uh, uh, for your use. That's what Kolamitzvot mitzvot could mean. And probably does mean. But what Lieberman points out, uh, and I say it's a very shrewd observation on his point, is that later on in the Tosefta, in a passage we'll be looking at more closely in the second half of our, lec- uh, of our lecture, later on in the Tosefta, the term mitzvot can also mean benedictions. Benedictions are also a mitzvah. So Lieberman suggests that what this Tosefta is really doing is integrating the brachot into a broader framework of mitzvot and saying that what I am expressing in action by all of the mitzvot, I need to also express verbally by reciting a bracha. The bracha is sort of the crowning touch to all of those mitzvot. In all of them, it's thought I am acting out my recognition of divine sovereignty. I'm giving concrete expression to the fact that I recognize that God has prior claim to this produce. And then, at the very moment when I'm about to partake, when I'm about to enjoy the fruit, at that moment, I have to give yet one final uh, sign of recognition of divine sovereignty, this time verbally. Okay? In other words, it's not enough to have done it in the past. Okay? Uh, perhaps, and perhaps the idea is, I mean, perhaps there's a kind of psychological, spiritual truth here, that it's a lot easier to recognize divine sovereignty when it's not on your dinner table. Okay? While well, it's sitting out in the field, so, okay, so this is for this one and that's for that one. You know, your, uh, your employer withholds your income tax and it's a lot easier than sitting down at the end of the year and making out a check and sending it to Uncle Sam, right? It's a... Uh, okay? Uh, but when it's sitting on your dinner table, so then the halacha says, what you did before isn't enough. Once more acknowledge it, this time verbally, already given all the gifts, that's fine. But at least say now verbally, before I partake of this, I recognize that this is your gift. Okay? And then, the two parts of the statement, in fact... Uh, work out together, can be coordinated together uh, quite well. Okay, we've seen how the first two statements of the Tosefta fit together, how they cohere. Let's now look at the third statement of the Tosefta. A person should not use his hands, his uh, his uh, his uh, face, his hands and his legs, except for the glory of his Maker, as it says, everything God has created for his sake, for his benefit. How does that fit in? What does that have to do with with what we said earlier? Yes? When you eat, you have to use your face because if you don't open your mouth, you can Okay, so how does this fit in with the idea? Okay, good. I, th- I think your observation is, is correct. Eating is a use, usually, of hands as well. You don't usually eat just with your face. Usually, your feet don't usually come into that part of it, but uh, the hands do. Okay, so perhaps uh, eating is one of the kinds of uses of, of one's body that, uh, that the Tosefta is talking about. But how does this fit in with the idea of the uh, of the blessing? Yes. Uh, I think that's a very very important point yes there are a number of ways in the way interact with the world you can maybe notice a beautiful knowledge to reach the world you know you're in the world and more than just can it if I can it mm-hmm okay yes it's a little heavy though because if I'm using my hand to scratch my face I don't see why I have to say a it. uh-huh huh okay um, we're not saying here that every single thing you do you have to recite a bracha. and right? that you you're entirely uh, correct that that would be uh, overkill okay I don't think uh, I don't think uh, we're, uh, the tosefta is aiming for overkill here the Tosefta is clearly making a, you know, a much more general statement about one's orientation okay one's one's awareness or one's consciousness as he does it and not necessarily saying that that Consciousness has to be verbalized. In other words, when one eats, you have to verbalize your awareness that you are benefiting from God's world. In other areas, you may not have to verbalize it, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to be aware of it. Yes? That's a very interesting analogy. I think it's, uh, I think it's a very nice uh, uh, analogy as well. In other words, uh, yes, you wanted to add something? No. Oh. Okay. Um, uh, in other words, when we say at the end that everything you do should be this, for the sake of God, what I think we're doing is raising the stakes. Okay, We're not saying only that in order for me to have benefit, I should first recognize God's sovereignty, and then God says, okay, go ahead. Okay? Even while I'm benefiting, I should be doing that for the sake of God as well. Okay? In other words, it's not, uh, you know, it's not like I gave God His quarter and now I can take mine. Okay? When I gave God His quarter, then that should also transform the way I look at the quarter that I take for myself. As I then benefit, I should recognize that that too is for the sake of God. Or in other words, what a bracha is supposed to do is not just acknowledge divine sovereignty over the things from which I'm benefiting. It's a way of acknowledging God's sovereignty over me as well and integrating my enjoyment of the world into service of God. I enjoy the world as a form of service of God. I can enjoy the world just for my own sake. And the the Tosefta saying, that's inappropriate. I should be enjoying the world for God's sake. What makes enjoyment for God's sake? How do I enjoy things and, and that becomes for God's sake? Well, first of all, by acknowledging God's sovereignty. By acknowledging God's sovereignty over the things from which I am benefiting by acknowledging God's sovereignty over me, the fact that my body belongs to God as well. So when I enjoy things, I am enjoying them as, a, as, a, as an act of worship. Okay. There, there, there is a, a well-known, just a moment, there is a well-known Hasidic idea of avodah okay, to serve God through, through gashmiyut, through, the, through material enjoyment. And I think the Tosefta is very, very close to this idea. And it's not only a Hasidic idea, by the way. The uh, well-known uh, Misnagdic thinker, Rabbi Soloveitchik has a passage about this meaning of brachot in his, uh, in his work, Uvi Kashtem Misham. Okay? And I think the Tosefta is very close, uh, 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 is very close to this idea. Okay? By acknowledging divine sovereignty, by intending to serve God in all in all my activities, even those things that I do for my benefit and for my enjoyment become a form of service, become a way of serving God. Yes? Right. Okay? Good. Yes? Okay. Good. I, I think that's uh, also uh, an important uh, observation. Okay, in other words, uh, it's not only uh, 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 it's not only an expansion of recognition of sovereignty from a preliminary step to the to the uh, benefit itself, but it's also an expansion of the concept of benefit. Okay. It's not only when I benefit from the world; it's any kind of activity, any kind of interaction with the world. And uh, I'd like to come back as well to your point, uh, which also deals with lishamesh. Lishamesh uh, has an overtone of service. Okay, very often lishamesh means to serve. Okay, so it's true. Here we're talking about to have your body serve you, but perhaps there's a kind of overtone that, since you belong to God, when your body serves you, it also serves God. God created your body, and therefore anything that you do with your body can be, if your uh, spiritual orientation is correct, it can be a form of service of God. Okay, so when the Tosefta provides this introduction to the to the laws of Rachot, okay, I think it's giving us uh, some very profound theological ideas, okay, that are supposed to be included, that are supposed to be conveyed by the recitation of brachot. Let's now turn to the Mishnah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely, And particularly when we look at the brachot as a kind of uh, uh, capstone to to a whole series of mitzvot that I've been performing. In other words, the point is, okay, finished with those mitzvot and now I can get down to the serious business of enjoying myself. The whole point of a brachot is to pull you up short at that very moment of enjoyment okay, and say, why am I doing this? What is this all about? Okay. Uh, I once heard a nice uh, uh, analogy. Okay, and, you know, in, in the ongoing uh, battle between uh, Hasidim and uh, Misnagdim, that's sort of uh, uh, sort of been reawakened in recent years. You know, with uh, Karlbach and New Age mentalities and so on. Uh, so you know, there are some stories that uh, that are pro-Hasidic and some stories that are pro-Misnagdic. Okay, so even though. My own orientation is more towards the Misnagdic, I'm going to tell a pro-Hasidic story. Okay, the difference between a Chasid and a Misnagid is uh, that the Misnagid will walk into an orchard and see fruit and he'll say, that's a beautiful fruit. It really looks luscious. Okay, I'd, I'd really love to eat it. So he'll he'll take the fruit and he'll say, Baruch Hata Hashem Elkenem Elchalam B'Rei Priya with the appropriate fervor and eat the fruit. Okay? That's the misnard. Sounds fine. But the chassid, on the other hand, will walk into the orchard and he'll say, what a beautiful fruit, what a wonderful world God has made. Okay? I'd really love to somehow express my, my admiration and adoration of God for creating this wonderful world. How can I do that? What, what would be an appropriate way? I wish we were to do it. Ah! If I eat the fruit... Okay, then I can recite the bracha and that way I can give expression to my, uh, my appreciation of this world. Okay, and that's, that's, uh, that's a higher level of service of God. And I dare say that the, to- that the first two parts of the Tosefta are more like the Misnagdic approach. And the third part of the Tosefta, I think, is orienting us more to what I've termed here as the, uh, as the Hasidic approach. Yes? Right, that's what it's supposed to do, of course. I mean, that, that could also become rather, per, rather, rather perfunctory. And uh, I have uh, one, of, one of my colleagues in, uh, in Eretz Okay, when he says to me, how are you doing? And I say to him, Baruch Hashem, he says, I asked you how you're doing. I didn't ask you for, you know, for your uh, religious uh, philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, I mean, that, that could also become a sort of perfunctory observance. But you're right, that's, that's, that is what it is supposed to express. Yes, I'm not looking for ways to bow up God. I'm the victim of cousin. He's not even hungry. He's just gonna ramp that apple down his throat so we could uh you know do something for God. That's the science. Uh, okay, I'm not gonna get into that argument. Uh, well uh wh- whoever w identifies with either side of the story I think has good warrant for it, yes. Okay, that's the subject of the second half of the morning. Okay, so we'll, you are uh, jumping the gun here and we, we will be uh, discussing that in the, in the latter part of the morning. But right now, we're just following the lead of the text. Okay, the Tosefta here and the Mishnah in these three chapters okay, is describing a much more benign and, and beneficent world. Okay, it's a world in which we are partaking of the bounty of God and blessing Him for it. So following that lead, that's where we are right now. Okay? That's uh, the the other side of reality, the downside of it, the darker side of it, is going to come up a bit bit later on. And I think that's part of the rhythm of of the Masechet. So we're going to follow along with that rhythm. So right now, we're shutting out that side and following, following what the Mishnah and Tosef have to say about the Beneficent side. Okay, let's just take a few moments, and that's all we have to devote to this, to briefly review the three chapters of Mishnah that are before us. Okay, chapter 6. The main topic of chapter 6 is what? What prachot to say? At what stage? before you eat. What we call nehenin, the brachot that we recite before we eat, which are the brachot that the Tosefta just gave us an introduction to. Right? That's in order that I not be considered as one who is ma'al, as one who has misappropriated. I have to first, before I partake, I have to acknowledge the fact that it is God who created them. That's the major subject of chapter 6. And I'd like to call your attention to a division within chapter 6. Chapter 6 divides uh, basically into two parts. Uh, I should note, by the way, before saying this, the last Mishnah already begins discussing the main subject of the next couple of chapters, which is Birkat Hamazon, okay? which is the blessing after you eat. Okay, That's at the very end of the chapter, and that's a uh, that's a bit uh, uh, a bit odd uh, last year when I gave a talk at uh, Drisha, the Rosenwein Memorial Lecture I talked uh, at greater length about that, about the structure of this chapter and about the placement of this Mishnah, which we're not going to have time to get into uh, today, but I do want to talk about the division of the chapter the first four Mishnayot talk about brachot over individual foods the first four sections of this chapter, brachot over individual foods. The next four mishnayot, including the final one that talks about the bracha after the food, is not talking about brachot over individual foods, but rather, anybody? There is a hierarchy. That comes up already at the end of the first section, by the way. By, uh, By the fourth mishnah of the first section, there's already a kind of hierarchy of foods at least according to Rabbi Huda if not according to the Chachamim but in the second half of the chapter it's not just the hierarchy of foods that that's part of it but but there's a, another framework that's discussed here yes okay and uh, we have a name that we can give to combinations of foods a meal, a meal. <laughs> Okay, we talk about a meal. Okay, the first part of the chapter is talking about brachot over individual foods. The second part of the chapter is talking about a meal. Okay, and uh, it's important to note, by the way, why why this is uh, significant. Okay, uh, a meal means a cultural framework for eating. Okay, uh, and uh, there's another point that Rabbi Soloveitchik. Uh, was fond of making that one of the things that differentiates man from the animal is that for the animal biological functions are no more and no less than biological functions. For human beings, uh, biological functions are generally carried out in certain kinds of social frameworks. Okay? So, for example, something that we're not discussing uh, here. Okay? For example, sexuality has to be expressed within a socially sanctioned framework. You have to have a marriage. A marriage is a cultural creation which gives social sanction to acts of sexuality. Okay? And by the same token, eating is also carried out within a socially sanctioned framework. Okay? In other words, I don't just, you know, eat on the run. Okay? I sit down to a meal. And sitting down to a meal uh, has a certain structure. So, for example, one of the things the Mishnah is very, uh, is very insistent upon is that the meal is structured essentially around two main foods, which are wine and bread. Bread and wine create the framework for a meal. Okay? And we think about uh, in particular, I mean, we, where do we really preserve this? Okay? We preserve this at the Shabbat table or at a Chag. We preserve it at the Seder. Okay. The Christians, they'll have preserved this in their Last Supper. Okay, and Mass to this very day is based exactly on that—the fact that at the Last Supper the bread and the and the wine, okay, were the main features of the meal. Okay, so I mean uh, you see here how the you know, how the Christians are are preserving their ancient Jewish traditions. Okay. Uh, and you know, transforming them in ways that we may not be particularly happy with, but the traditions are there. I mean, the source of the tradition is something that's, that's very, uh, that's very familiar to us. That's part of the framework of a meal. There's the whole idea that you're privileging one kind of food over another kind of food, is already a statement okay, that there's a cultural framework. And br- the special brachod over bread and wine reflect the idea that we are giving this cultural framework religious significance. Okay? So, we are not only giving religious sanction to to, to what the Tosefta talks about. Okay? I'm I'm going to benefit from this world and so I'm going to thank God for it. But I'm also giving religious expression to the social framework within within which I'm partaking. So, by making a special bracha over wine, and a special bracha over bread, I'm also expressing that the cultural framework is also divine or also has significance. It also creates a form of worship, a way in which I can serve God. So I'm serving God not just through the eating per se, but through the way in which I eat, through the social and cultural framework within which, uh, uh, within which I eat. So these are the two parts of, of, uh, of chapter 6. Having said that, we can see readily how Chapter Seven just picks up where Chapter Six has left off. Um, yes, the the idea there—you'll notice—it's only Rabbi Yehuda who argues that you don't uh, that you don't recite a bracha over those things. Rabbi Yehuda feels that there are certain kinds of food that express in their very essence the idea of curse. In other words, uh, if I'm eating locusts. It's only because those damn locusts came and ate up all of my, uh, ate up all of my uh, wheat, okay, all of my grain, and I don't have bread, so I can at least eat the locusts, okay. So, but you know, if I had my druthers, I wouldn't be eating the locusts; I'd be eating the bread, right? And the same thing with the with the vinegar, okay. I mean, it's true, you know, vinegar is very good in salad, but when I squeezed the grapes, that wasn't what I was hoping would come out. I was hoping that what would come out is wine. Well, a certain percentage always turns out as being vinegar. So, uh, you know, so I, I say, uh, shucks and darn, and hopefully not anything worse than that, but uh, I use the vinegar. <laughs> what can I do? I have the vinegar, I make use of it. Rabbi Uda says, it's hardly the subject of a blessing. Okay. Uh, and the sages, on the other hand, say, if I'm benefiting if I'm benefiting from it, I should recite the blessing regardless. And Rabbi Yuda says, no. A blessing reflects the fact that I feel good about it. I'm thanking God, for. I can't... Uh, here I'm sort of verging on the subject that you raised, by the way. Okay? Uh, whether I can... To what extent I can thank God for things that didn't turn out the way I hoped. Okay? So within the framework of Birkot you have this dispute then between Rabbi uda and the, and the Chachami. Okay? Now... Chapter 7 basically takes its cue from the second half of Mishnah and more generally from the second half of chapter 6. Chapter 7 talks about Birkat Hamazon, the Brachai recite after Eden. So that's following through on the subject introduced at the end of chapter 6. But it's particularly talking about how I recite Birkat Hamazon in a social framework. In other words, berkatamazon recited by an individual and berkatamazon recited by a group of people are not the same thing. Okay, there's a group of people and they recite a different berkatamazon. They recite berkatamazon as a kind of eating community. Okay, and that becomes a higher form of worship. And it's been noted frequently that uh, that we have access to the documents from Qumran we know that the communal meal was a major uh, occasion for worship within Qumran. And that's a very uh, nice analogy to what we have here in Chazal. For Chazal as well, the communal meal is an object for worship. And interestingly, there's one opinion in the Mishnah, that the bigger the crowd, the higher the worship. Okay, and... When you get up to a crowd of 10,000 people who are all eating together, then you recite a blessing to God that's reminiscent of the vision of the chariot, the vision of the prophet Ezekiel in chapter one, where the heavens open and he sees God sitting on His throne. Okay. In other words, uh, the more people, the so more you get to God. What? Okay, look in uh, chapter 7, Mishnah 3 and and you'll you'll see the... uh, uh, We don't accept this uh, uh, halachic, but there is such an opinion uh, uh, in the Mishnah. Okay, so a a society that eats and recites Birkat Hamazon has this special special quality. Yes, right, but we're referring to Zimun, correct. Okay, so we have retained this distinction that a uh, community of three that eats together does zimun, and a community of ten that eats together will also recite the name of God as part of their zimun. We'll say Elokeinu. Okay? There is an opinion recorded in the Mishnah, uh, 7.3, okay, that where for a hundred then you expand the formula, for a thousand you expand it further, and for ten thousand you expand it yet further. In these terms that, that make it almost visionary, almost prophetic. It becomes almost a prophetic experience to, to, to bless God uh, when you have such a large crowd of people who are uh, 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 who are blessing God together. Yes. Um, there could be many reasons why people will do that, but if we take the uh, okay, if we take the more favorable view of it uh, and, and view it religiously, which hopefully happens. Uh, uh, a significant percentage of uh, uh, of the time, then yes. In other words, you have this concept, berov am hadrat melech, which translates into English, the more the merrier, but actually, in this case, it would be the more the holier. okay? You, the, the, the greater glory of God is enhanced by the larger number of people who are praising Him. And when you have a very large group of people praising God together, then that, 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 that has a tremendous force. And by the way, I mean experiences that, uh, that uh, I and, and many people in Israel have had. Okay, when sometimes when there are mass prayer rallies, uh, for example, at that, uh, the Western Wall, at the Kotel, okay, it's a, tr- a tremendously religiously uplifting experience. Okay, I mean there, there, there's something real about, about that idea. So again, you know that. These things can be and sometimes are done for uh, for cheaper reasons than that. But, but uh, yes, there, there is a, uh, a, a real religious power uh, uh, to this idea. And the Mishnah gives it expression specifically, interestingly, within the framework of a meal. Okay, now uh, let's turn to chapter 8. Yeah, okay, that's a technical point that we can't really uh, uh, get into. It has to do with how exactly the one who is summoning the others, or the, 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 the uh, benching leader, how he interacts with the community. Is he sort of separate from the community or is he integrated into the community? And based on that, you read either I am summoning them and they respond, or Nevarech, which he's sort of participating together with them. Say, so let us bless, and then they bless. And it's as though he's, inclu- you know, he's including himself within that framework by using... Uh, uh, by using that, 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 that formula. So that's, uh, that's a different issue that we can't really develop at length today. Yes? Okay, look, you know, this gets into notions that really are, you know... Uh, not in general, the Jewish conception of community is a community that is in which the core group is men. And, uh, you know, I am trying to be careful in the language, I don't believe that it's a community in which women are excluded, it's a community in which women are not the core group okay, but women are part of the broader sense of community by and large in, 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 in cases, okay, but that's you know that's a topic in its own right that, that I don't think I don't think uh, we should take the time to get into here, we have other other fish to fry uh, in order to understand the massacre, uh, that's not really, that doesn't really come up here in, in this uh, in this discussion, you know the the proper place to discuss that actually is the fourth chapter of Megillah. The fourth chapter of Megillah, that question would be would be really more more germane. Uh, okay, chapter eight. What's chapter eight about? Anybody uh, who got that far and has something to say about it? Okay, that's the subject of the first Mishnah, but more generally, there, there's a there's a kind of uh, uh, kind of title given at the beginning, okay? Okay, it's, it's machlokot between, disputes between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai surrounding a meal. And many of them have to do with benedictions, not all of them. Some of them have to do with other practices. The main topic of the other practices, by the way, has to do with purity, How one maintains purity within the framework of the meal. And let's remember, one of the things that uh, the Mishnah alludes to here is washing one's hands before the meal. That's a symbol of purity. One purifies oneself in order to eat. Which also expresses the fact that a meal is a kind of framework of holiness. So we have to sanctify ourselves, purify ourselves, which in a sense means to either to sanctify ourselves or to open ourselves to the possibility of sanctity before you partake of the meal and other than that it talks about the brachot and interestingly many of the brachot have to do with two meals that frame the Shabbat the Shabbat meal where you make Kiddush and the Havdalah meal and this is something with which we're not so familiar normally we don't recite Havdalah together with benching. That's not part of the way in which we do things. But the Mishnah seems to take that as normative. That Havdalah and Benching are coordinated together. And you take a cup of wine, and over that cup of wine you recite the Havdalah as well as Birkat Hamazon, as well as the Benching, okay, over one cup of wine, and, and then Beit Hilem Beit debate how exactly that should be done. So there's really... We're really again continuing the theme of a meal as a framework of sanctity, and talking about how the meal as a framework of sanctity can sanctify time. Was that the practice in those days? Day it, see, it seems to have been. It seems to have been. I, I, I don't know that we have you know, much more explicit sources on the matter. That's my recollection. We don't, but uh, from, from these, that uh, that that was the practice. Okay, so. So the meal then again is our framework and the framework of the meal okay, as, a, as an occasion for reciting brachot, to God, benedictions to God and as a framework for sanctity now has taken on yet a further meaning of a meal as a framework for sanctifying sacred occasions, such as Shabbat. Okay? You sanctify it at the beginning and you sanctify it at the end. Yeah, you sanctify it by having a sacred meal at the beginning. You sanctify it by having a kind of farewell meal to Shabbat at the end. And I guess probably the closest thing to that in our practice would be a Malava Malka. Okay? A Malava Malka more or less has has that idea attached to it. And here it seems to be integrated uh, into into the, the Havdalah framework. Okay, So that's what these three chapters have talked about. And uh, regrettably, since we have Uh, little time and much to cover, that's more or less what I'll be able to say about these three chapters. And uh, for the rest of the morning, we're going to be looking at chapter number nine. Chapter nine, as I uh, indicated in my first question, seems to be quite a departure from the rest of the tractate, not just from the immediately preceding chapters 6 through 8, but from 1 through 8. Okay, 1 through 8 and 9 seem to be two very, very different, uh, uh, different frameworks. And, and what, what is unique about chapter 9? Good and evil is part of it. But that's only one of the topics. It's a central topic in chapter 9, but it's not the only topic in chapter 9. There is a broader framework that we could, uh, we could suggest. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Yes? I felt it was more about the things that we don't really have control over. More of the things that we're saying that this is what God has control over and, you know, things that happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yes? Related to that, how far can you go in asking God to interfere with the order of things that's established? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. No, uh, yes? Yes? Okay, I think the the simplest, uh, most basic category uh, is, as uh, some of you have suggested, the everyday versus the uncommon. And and chapter 9, at one point, in fact, makes a point about the uncommonness uh, of the events described. This is towards the end of the second Mishnah, um, uh, right in the middle of the second Mishnah, actually, when Rabbi Yehuda says, one who sees... The uh, the great ocean, in other words, uh, not just a sea but an ocean, it says Baruch <laughs> Shasat Tayam Hagadol. He recites a special blessing over the ocean, and then inclu- uh, and then concludes with Bisman Sheroel Oto Frakim, If he sees it only from time to time, mm-hmm. and many authorities have understood that this refer this uh, caveat refers not only seeing an ocean but it refers in general to, to the other things so let's say for example there's a uh, uh, there's a thunderstorm okay so uh, you, you know by the uh, 90th uh, thunderclap you're not going to be reciting the brachai. It's in a way it's reminiscent of the uh, uh, Jewish astronaut you know who was asked what you know what it's like and he said it's terrible on with it filling off with the filling on with it's filling off with the filling. You know, so I mean, you're not going to recite a bracha every two minutes over every single thunderclap, right? And in fact, alecha is you recite it once during a given storm, and the next time you'll recite it is after the clouds have cleared. The clouds have cleared, and then you have another thunderstorm. Then then you'll recite it. Uh, then you'll recite it again. So there, it's not uh, here. Prakim is usually understood with regard to the oceans. Usually understood as once every 30 days. Okay? But, you know, someone, uh, you know, someone who lives in uh, Far away is, you know, is not going to get up every single morning and recite a bracha, Baruch Shasat Hayam agadol. Okay? But if you go to visit uh, less than once every 30 days, that's when, that's when you would uh, recite the bracha. So the uncommonness of it is, is given clear expression here. But even those things that are not, uh, you know, where it's not explicit, we're talking about something uncommon, it's clear that that's what we're talking about. In some cases, we're talking about a one-time event. When, when we say, to build a new house, okay? That should hopefully happen once in a lifetime, maybe two or three times if you're unlucky. Uh, uh, what? <laughs> yeah, or, or if you're lucky to move up in the world. But if you've been luckier, you'll build uh, the dream house the first time, right? i have several Okay, in any event, uh, uh, in any event you know, here we could be talking about something that happens once in a lifetime. So, the whole framework of the chapter is talking about unique events, as opposed to the first eight chapters that are talking about daily events. That's their whole character. The whole point of chapters one through eight is kriyachmah is twice a day, day in, day out. Okay, Tfilah is three times a day and sometimes four times a day, day in, day out. Birkat Hamazon, every single time you, say, you, you eat something, you make a Birkat nehenin. If it's a meal, then you make Birkat mazon. Okay, and so on. Here we're talking about the daily, everyday way of worshipping God, and chapter 9 is talking about how you respond to events. Okay, events that occur. They don't occur every single day. The whole character of these events is that they're uh, unusual. Now, some of you have added, I think, a very interesting suggestion that 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 which is unusual tends very often to be also out of the ordinary. And so, the whole way of responding to it can be very different. Because in one case, I'm worshipping God for the everyday, for the familiar. Okay? I'm trying to remind myself day in and day out, that even that which is familiar is in the hands of God. Okay? In the ninth chapter, I am reminding myself that those things that are unfamiliar are in the hands of God. Okay? Now, each one of them presents a different kind of a challenge. Okay? In one of them, you have the challenge of of, uh, routine. Okay? This was a one of the central insights of Kierkegaard, who uh, wrote a, a short book called uh, called Repetition, in which he argued that uh, repetition is what divides the aesthetic sensibility from the religious sensibility, because the aesthetic sensibility, he said, uh, in, in Kierkegaard's incomparable formulation. Repetition is the reef upon which the aesthetic founders. Okay? The aesthetic has to be constantly challenged with something new. Okay? It has to be something new, unique. So, uh, you can't whip up that enthusiasm for, uh, uh, for the thing which is, which is familiar. R- religion, on the other hand, he says, thrives on the repetition. Religion is all about... Constantly coming back to the same meaning. Okay, it it means no. uh, Even though it seems to be the same thing, you're constantly finding meaning in it. Okay, I remember once having uh, a discussion uh, about this with a uh, uh, distant relative of mine who's a professional actor, and uh, in Israel a few years ago. They put out a new production of Fiddler on the Roof, and he was one of the actors. He played the role of the rabbi in, uh, in Fiddler. And uh, before the uh, performance, we uh, met with him uh, backstage, and uh, you know, we were asking about you know, what, what, what it's like and so on. And uh, he, he said something very interesting about the difference between the, uh, uh, an amateur actor and a professional said, an amateur actor can give you a wonderful performance if he's talented. He said, but what only the professional actor can do is give you that same wonderful performance day after day. Said, For that, you have to be a professional actor. Okay? And I remarked to him, I said, well, you know, so being an actor, in a sense, is like being religious. And I quoted, uh, quoted this observation of Kierkegaard to him. In other words, to be religious is, is really to be a professional actor. Okay, you have to come back day in and day out and once again find meaning in the familiar, in the everyday. And that means two things. It means finding meaning in the familiar and everyday. In other words, the sun rose yesterday and it rose two days ago and it rose three days ago. But when I say a bracha, that God makes the sun rise, then I'm according meaning to that event. And of course, also includes the mitzvah performance itself. Okay? It's not just that the sun rose every day as far back as I can remember, probably as far back as anybody can remember, but also I made that bracha hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, times in my life, and I have to find meaning in that as well. Okay? So that's the challenge that the first eight chapters of Masechet Brachot is, ...is really about. It's finding that religious meaning in the everyday. Chapter 9 is about a different challenge. There are events that might seem, in fact, to challenge, to challenge divine supremacy. And that's why I think at the, at the beginning of the chapter... ...we're talking about, first of all, something which really affirms divine supremacy... When we see miracles, a place that reminds us of miracles that have occurred, so then we thank God for these miracles. But then we immediately turn to the sorts of things that might challenge divine supremacy. So, for example, the next bracha is the abolition of idolatry. Well, the abolition of idolatry is a different kind of confirmation of God's supremacy. Namely, his rivals have been eliminated. Okay? We're acknowledging that he has rivals. But when the rivals are eliminated, then we bless God for that. But the next stage, actually, in my view, is where we bless God for those things that oftentimes, certainly in pagan religions, were regarded as his rivals. Okay? Who were the chief gods of most pagan pantheons? They're usually, the storm gods, the god of thunder or the god of the storm. Okay, that's the case in in many in many uh, in many religions. Zeus or Jupiter was the storm god. Okay, in some pagan religions, they were like second in command, not always first in in command. Uh, Marduk was the storm god. Marduk was the head of the Babylonian pantheon, but let's say uh, Thor was second in command. He was the storm god. In Norse mythology, he was the, like, uh, like number two, or Enlil, okay, uh, who was uh, okay, in a different brand of, of, of Mesopotamian religion. Babylonian religion was Marduk. In, in other Mesopotamian religions, it was Enlil, who was a storm god, and he was generally regarded as the second in command. But very often, uh, you know, storms made people think of the gods. Okay? Made people think of other powers. And to, and to bless God for, for something of that nature is to say, these powers are in your hand. These are not independent powers. And that exactly, by the way, is the, is the difference between, uh, between monotheism and idolatry or paganism. Paganism believes that different powers are separate and independent. They have their own autonomy. There is a power that controls rainfall, and there's a power that controls the storm, and they're not necessarily the same. And there's a power that controls fertility. Okay. And each one of these powers becomes personified in the form of a god. And the mythologies then explain different natural phenomena on the basis of the Quasi-human characteristics of the gods. When, when, when the gods are sitting in council and, and make a decision, well, you know, we all, we all know, for example, uh, what the uh, definition of a camel is. A camel is a horse designed by a committee, right? So when the gods sit in council, they design camels instead of horses. And uh, well, actually, camels are very well designed for where they live. Okay, that's you know. That's a, a different uh, point of view on the, uh, on the issue, okay? But, but the, uh, uh, the point is, you know, the gods have their political intrigues, and that creates all kinds of very dangerous situations for human beings, okay? Just like the political intrigues of our political leaders can create all kinds of poorly thought-out decisions, of uh, of the politicians, so there can be poorly thought-out decisions of the gods as well, okay? which are uh, of, of ex- existential uh, significance and concern to human beings. Okay, Monotheism, on the other hand, believes that there is one god who controls all of these powers and forces. And so when we bless god for the lightning and the thunder and the shooting stars and so on, what we're saying is, all of these major powers that, for so many ancient human societies and cultures, represented independent powers, for us they represent one God. They're all controlled by that one God who, 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 uh, 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 who transcends them all. And from here, the Mishnah moves into what is perhaps the most potent challenge to our belief in divine unity, and that is... Good and evil. And we move from the forces of nature, okay, as an occasion for blessing God, to human events. There are human events, and we bless God for them as well. And human events, by and large, uh, break down into two kinds. There are favorable events, and there are unfavorable events. And what do we do? We bless God for both of them. We bless God for the favorable events, and we bless God for the unfavorable events. And why do we bless God for the unfavorable as well as for the favorable? Yes? Okay, I mean, I, uh, I think the ideas you're you're uh, you're proposing are, are, are correct, but I think you're sort of starting at stage two or three of the uh, of the thinking process. I think we have to start a bit further back before we get to the point that, that uh, before we get to the point that you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, but you see, the question I have is why? Well, why do we assume that all of this is the case? Yes. Well, I think turns terms I must just listen. Um, I think again, if, when you go to unfavorable event and you don't let it get to you, get you down, and you try to, I guess they call it a positive outlook. I don't know if that's really the right term. I think you learn from it and you someone else can be strengthened from it. And if you say to God, like, you know, why is this Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yes, you Okay. Good. I think we're we're hitting uh, close to the heart of the matter now. Yes. Okay, Now th- th- there are two central ideas here, the, the last two ideas that have been suggested that I think are, are, you know, are a good starting point for, for, our, for our discussion of this. And a lot of the ideas that other people suggested will, will come up a little later on uh, as, we, as we discuss it. Okay, the last idea that was suggested, I want to start with that one, is that uh, we don't actually know what's good and what's bad. Okay, we have a limited perception of what's good and what's bad. And sometimes what appears to be bad turns out to be good. What appears to be good turns out to be bad. You know, when the candidate for whom you voted wins, you, you're delighted. Gee, gee, that's wonderful. And then when he actually begins to implement p- his policies or otherwise, then you uh, wonder, why in heaven's name did I ever vote for him? But the truth is, you were very happy at the time that 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 he was elected. Okay? Unless you've reached my uh, lofty age and you're cynical about any of the people that you elect to begin with. Um, but uh, um, you don't always know. The Mishnah gives expression to this idea, but not quite in the thoroughgoing way in which we just presented it. The Mishnah says, if we look at, at Mishnah 3 in our chapter... It says, Mevarech al Hara'a atova me'e'n Hara'a. Okay, a curious formulation, but which has normally been understood in the following way. We recite a benediction for evil that is like good, and good that is like evil has generally been understood as meaning the following. When there is something good, and I can uh, perceive. That somewhere down the line that good thing is going to result in something evil. Okay, I nonetheless make a bracha over the good, and when there is something evil, that, in the long run, will turn out to be something good. I will still make a bracha uh, over something evil. Okay, so that if, for example, my beloved uncle Chasb Shalom passes away, then uh, that's a bad thing. Okay. The money that he willed to me is a good thing. Okay? Now, I know that I'm a major beneficiary in his will. Okay? So I could say, well, his death isn't necessarily such a bad thing after all. No, I don't say that. Say, right now, it's a bad thing. When the will is probated sometime in the future, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I come up for the inheritance, then I'll make a bracha over something good. Okay? Right now, it's something bad. Or... Uh, an example given in the Talmud is: uh, My field is flooded. Okay, so there go this year's crops. On the other hand, over the next few years, my field is going to be exceptionally fertile, and I can look forward to several years of of excellent uh, uh, of an excellent yield. But it doesn't matter. Right now, it's bad news, so I make the bracha over the bad news. Okay, in the future, when the good thing actually takes place, then I'll make a bracha over something good. Now, I do the same thing about uh, about something good. Okay? I win the lottery. That's something good. I know from statistics that people who've won the lottery tend, in the end, to be very unhappy that they did. Their families fall apart and all kinds of other wonderful things happen. So, I still make a bracha over something good and hope the bad things, hopefully in my case, won't happen. But if they do, so then I'll make the bracha over the bad things That happened right now, I I make the bracha over something good, even though I know that down the line it's liable to lead to uh, all kinds of uh, nastier uh, events. So, we don't quite go this agnostic route of saying we don't know what's good and what's bad. We do rely on our human judgment as to what's good and what's bad, and we bless God both for the good and for the bad, but differently. Based on our judgment, based on how it appears to us. We experience this as good, so we will bless God. Those are the brachot for something good. Agnostic means that I say, I really don't know what's good and bad, so I'll, give, I'll bless God for everything. Right? Like uh, the formula that's mentioned actually in the Talmud. Whatever God does is for the good. So I'll always bless God, you know. Uh, always, you know, uh, some people who, no matter what happens, always say, Hakol everything is for the good. That's not what the Allah mandates, in fact. The halacha does not mandate saying everything is for the good. The halacha mandates saying... When something good happens to you, you bless God for a good thing. When something bad happens to you, you bless God for a bad thing. So we are we are presuming to judge what's good and what's bad, but we're blessing God even though it's bad. So I think the 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 uh, the idea here is not an idea that we don't really know. Even when we feel that we do really know, or even when we say, "Okay, we don't really know," but We are human beings and the Torah was given to us as human beings. So we rely on our judgment even though we don't really know. So we'll still bless God based on our perception rather than based on the kind of knowledge that we don't really possess. Okay. So why is it that we bless God for evil? And the answer, I think, simply is because it comes from God. Whatever comes from God is a subject of blessing. We receive something from God, we bless Him. And if it's something evil, then we bless Him for the evil. And we say that the evil presumably serves some kind of purpose. What that purpose may be, the Mishnah doesn't get into that. But it's part of the belief structure. If it, okay, And, and here I come again to the, to the issue of, The the Mishnah is really dealing with challenges to divine sovereignty and to divine unity. If evil, if we couldn't bless God for the evil, then the next step down the line is we can't attribute the evil to God either. We would have to say the evil is coming from somewhere else. And then we're falling right into the trap that we discussed yesterday in chapter 5, of dualistic points of view, such as Gnosticism. Okay? In which the world is divided between a good God and a bad God. And in general, the people who believe in that say, and who's in, con- who's in the driver's seat right now? The bad one. They don't see too much evidence of the good one. In our world, we see a lot more evidence of the bad one. He's the one who's in the driver's seat of course, our job is to try to strengthen the good one. And that's what the Gnostic system is all about. How do we rebel against the God who is currently in control and try to strengthen that weak God who's somehow, somewhere in exile okay, and, and, and out of power? How do we strengthen him? Okay, and that's why Gnostics tend to be also uh, hermits. They tend to be you know, to separate themselves from the main body of society because they basically perceive the world as evil. They say, whatever good there is, it's, it's, you know, it's on the outskirts. It's on the outskirts of the world, it's on the outskirts of society, and you have to sort of go underground in order to, uh, uh, in order to make that happen. But our belief structure is very different. Our belief structure is there is one God in control, which means it's all part of the plan, Part of the plan is what we perceive as good, and part of the plan is what we experience as evil. And we take that experience seriously. We don't deny the experience of evil. Uh, This was a point, again, that uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik used to stress, uh, uh, stress very much in in his thinking. Judaism does not deny the experience of evil. Judaism believes that the experience of evil is part of our religious makeup. We experience evil as something that comes from God. We therefore bless God for that evil, despite the fact that we experience it as evil, and we take its evil character seriously, presumably because we do believe that somehow or other even the evil is to the greater good. Okay? But it's not, you know, it, it's not this reductionist kind of thinking in which we say, well, it's not really evil, it's really good. It is really evil. And that's why we, it has a separate bracha. We say, Baruch Dayan HaEmet. We don't say that when we experience something as good. When we experience something as evil, we say, that's a real experience. It really is something evil. Someone, Chas some passed away, or there was some other kind of a loss or a tragedy. We really experience that as evil. And we don't say, HaTov because somehow in the greater scheme it's to the good. We say Dayan Hayamat because we say, you know what you're doing. We trust you. We believe in you. We trust you. We know that you're doing this for a purpose. It may be a painful purpose, but it's a purpose nonetheless. And so it's really a different bracha. Yes? I think, uh, you know, I think it, once we uh, accept that we're not denying the existence of evil, okay, we're trying to accommodate our experience of evil and not to and not to uh, eliminate our experience of evil. Uh, part of our experience of evil is that evil should be combated, okay. And the Mishnah, by the way, I, 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 I makes, I think, a very potent statement about that. At what point do we bless God for the evil? The Mishnah is very clear on that point. The Mishnah says that for something that's in the future I cry out to God. I may not cry out to God and petition Him for things that have happened already. But I do very much cry out to God and petition Him for things that haven't happened already. In other words, for anything that's in the future We rely entirely on our perception. And and we say to God, look, our petition to you is that this happen and that not happen. And then we're completely relying on our perception of things. After it's happened, and and by the way, this can be something instantaneous. Uh, Just just think about, you know, uh, this chapter, I think, is psychologically and spiritually extremely demanding. Uh, I heard in one of the uh, uh, Haruta sessions, someone saying it's inhuman. And I agree, it is inhuman. There are inhuman demands that are made upon a real monotheist. A person who believes, as, as, as this chapter of Mishnah wants a person to believe and to experience and, and, uh, and, to, and to worship. The okay? person desperately doesn't want X to happen. Okay, and the person I- I- is praying with all his soul and all his might that this not happen. And then it happens. And at that moment, the person stands up and says, Baruch Dayan Ha'emet. I thank God for this happening. It's instantaneous. There is a model for this, by the way, in, in, the, in the Tanakh. The model for this is King David... The son that was born to him from Shava after the sin, he was told in advance, the son is going to die. That's part of his punishment. And the son fell ill, and David HaMelech groveled in the dust. And for several days, he fasted, he wept, he prayed. And then the son died, and his servants didn't want to tell him, because they said, he went so crazy, he went so berserk, just from the illness, what will he do when he finds out that the son is dead? Well, it didn't help them. He, he saw that they were whispering among them, and he understood, and he said, did the child die? And they said yes. He immediately got up and washed himself and comforted his wife, and they didn't understand. The, the behavior didn't make any sense. And David's answer was, for the live child, I wept and I prayed, but what am I supposed to do now? The child is now dead. Okay? And in his memorable words, I'm going to go where he is. He's not going to come back to where I am. Okay? So, David HaMelech really showed us a model for how this is humanly possible. There's a very, very high level of belief and commitment. But it is not humanly impossible. It is stretching the limits of human nature, perhaps, to beyond where we normally perceive their limitations. But it is humanly possible to make that instantaneous switch from saying, when it didn't happen yet, this is, as far as I'm concerned, unqualified evil. I will do everything in my power to prevent it from happening. And that includes not only prayer. That includes acting to prevent it from happening. But once it's happened, as as a believer... I say to God, it came from you, and therefore I accept it. I accept it with love. It may be very painful for me to accept it, but that doesn't mean that I won't accept it. Okay? I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut short some of the questions because the time is running short, and and there are a few ideas I want to to express, so I'll be happy after the class to accept questions, but at this point, I'm afraid, uh, you know... If there were one or two questions, I'd be happy to accept them. But since there are more than one or two questions, I don't want to be unfair and hear this one and not that one. So please, hold the questions until the end of the class, okay? Um, Now, what I've said up till now, okay, is only part of the story. The Mishnah gives me another part of the story. The last Mishnah in the chapter, Mishnah 5 the Mishnah ups the ante from what we just said because the Mishnah says a person should bless God for evil just as he blesses him for good this is again for those of you who were here yesterday we talked about Agadic Mishnah versus Halachic Mishnah we talked about it today again in the Tosefta this is an Agadic Mishnah clearly the halacha is very clear and explicit. I bless God for evil differently than I bless Him for good. Just as we explained a few minutes ago. I bless God for evil, and I bless God for and they're two different blessings. They're two different experiences, and they're the occasion for two different blessings. But the Agadic Mishnah that comes pretty much to conclude Tractate Brachot, tells me, I bless God For evil, just as I bless him for good. And since that can't mean that I recite the same text, because I don't, unless the Agadah wants to completely contradict Allah here, I don't believe it does. Then what they're talking about, again, is not the externals of the bracha, but the internal component of the bracha. I bless God for evil with the same fervor for which I bless him for the good. Now that's again, that's a superhuman demand. It's a superhuman demand, and the Mishnah makes it. It's like the Hasidim Harishonim. The Hasidim Harishonim set us a, a superhuman model of prayer, and this Mishnah is setting us a superhuman model of how we bless God for evil. With the same fervor, with the same commitment, as I bless God, the good. Now, how does the Mishnah get to this conclusion? It says, There's a pasuk. I should love God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my might. Also an interesting idea. I can worship God with both my good urge and my evil urge. Okay? This is what Today, we might call sublimation. Okay? I can sublimate my evil urge and direct it towards the good. Okay? So a person can somehow take control even over his evil urge and say, it's part of my makeup. I'm not a completely good person. I have that evil urge. But I can turn it to the good. I can build my life in, a, in such a way as to direct even my evil urge uh, towards the good. Okay? Bechol nafshecha filu hu notelat nafshecha I love God even when He is taking away my soul. miodecha mamoncha With all of my property, with all of my wealth, I serve God. And then the Mishra says, wait. Bechol miodecha could have a different meaning. Miodecha is a difficult term. The first meaning, which is the usual translation, is all of my wealth. But then the Mishnah suggests maybe it has a different meaning. Very interesting formula, and based on a very radical midrashic reworking of the term meodecha. Meodecha is actually. Understood here as having three separate and distinct meanings that are all combined. It's as though the word were written three times and each time it's given a different meaning. The first meaning is <laughs> mida, م- meaning mida. Uh, linguistically, they're really two different words, their etymology is completely different. But the Midrash doesn't have any problem with that. They share the letters Mem and dalid. That's good enough. Okay? Meodecha means midah. Okay, Whatever God meets out to you, whatever measure God meets out to you, that's Bechol Meodecha, Bechol Midah. Then it's also Modeh. Again, a third etymology altogether. Doesn't matter. It shares the letters Mem and dalid. Good enough. Modeh, you should thank. So whatever he meets out, you should thank. But that's not the idea yet. We get to the idea with the third meaning. Bim'od Ma'od. Exceedingly. No matter what God meets out to you, you should thank him. And how should you thank him? Exceedingly. Certainly I thank him exceedingly for good fortune. For the good. The Pasuk teaches me, I thank God exceedingly for bad fortune as well. That's how the Pasuk teaches me. Now I'd like to leave the Mishnah, this specific Mishnah for a moment, and talk about what the Mishnah Redactor has done. The Mishnah Redactor has done a remarkable thing here. This Pasuk, Where does it come from? Kriyat Shema. And Kriyat Shema is the opening topic of Tractate Brachot. And what the Mishnah Redactor has done is bring us full circle. Mishnah Redactor has taken the first topic of the Masechet and woven it together with the final topic of the Masechet. The last topic of the Masechet was Brachot on special occasions. Special occasions means not only natural occasions, but human occasions. Human occasions brings us to this rumination on good and evil. How does a Jew respond to evil? You respond to evil by blessing God. Concluding thought, we bless God exceedingly no matter what. We thank God for the evil just as much as we thank Him for the good. And where does this come from? From Kriyach Kriatshma opened the Masachet as a ritual act performed at specified times of the day. And what happens to Kriyachma in the last Mishnah? How does that happen? How does it relate to special times? Kriyachma at the end of the tractate becomes an inspiration for how I handle every event that befalls me. In other words, what the Mishnah is in effect saying is, if I recited Kriyachma in the morning and recited Kriyachma in the evening and then respond to evil without saying, thank you God exceedingly for what you have bestowed upon me, it means I didn't really listen to what I was saying when I said Kriyachma this morning. If I really listen carefully to the Kriyachma that I recite every day, then I will know how to handle any event that befalls me. The unity of God, the love of God, has to permeate everything. If God is one, then my devotion to Him should be such that no matter what happens, I am utterly and completely devoted to Him. So if if He slaps me down, I remain utterly devoted to Him. Eiov okay, said it very clearly. Even if God were to strike me down, to I will hope for Him. I have no other hope in this world other than God. And therefore, no matter what befalls me, I, turn, I go back to Him. I turn back to Him. I am devoted to Him. I thank Him. Again, I'm not saying any of this is easy. And the Mishnah is quite aware that this is not easy. The Mishnah is aware this is an agadic demand that stretches human capacity to its utmost. But the Mishnah is presenting this as a model. And it's saying that's the real meaning of Kriyat Shema. So in effect, what the last Mishnah says, everything we've been doing this whole tractate is footnotes to Kriyat Shema. If you really understand what Kriyat Shema is all about, you don't just recite it. But you reflect on it. As you go through your day, you think about what Kriyat Shema has taught me, then Kriyat Shema has taught me how to respond to anything and everything that may occur to me. And so the brachot that are spelled out throughout the tractate are really brachot that are embedded within the theme of Kriyat Shema. I'd like to conclude by contrasting this with something that's done by the Tosefta. I'll just read the Tosefta with you in the English version. Okay? Or actually the Tosefta and a brief comment on the story of the death of Rabbi Akiva. Okay? In the paragraph in the English, conclusion of Brachot in Tosefta 624-25. Rabbi Meir used to say there's no person from Israel who does not do a hundred mitzvot every day. Recites Shema and blesses before and afterward. Eats bread and blesses before and afterwards. Prays Shmonet Ray three times. Does all the other mitzvot and blesses over them. Rabbi Meir says there is no person from Israel who does not do a hundred mitzvot every day. What are the hundred mitzvot? Blessings, benedictions. Remember what Lieberman taught us at the beginning of... Chapter 6 of the Mishnah, which was chapter 4 in the Tosefta. Brachot and mitzvot form a unit. Rabbi Meir is, was Lieberman's source for that idea. Rabbi Meir says, every person does at least 100 mitzvot daily. What are they? The Shema, the Amidah prayer, the blessings over food, and all the other mitzvot that you do during the day, which are accompanied by brachot. What is this, if not a summary of all of tractate brachot? The Tosefta, the same way the Mishnah rounded out tractate brachot and gave it a structure, by bringing us back from good and evil, it brought us right back to Kriyat Shema, but on a much higher plane. Now Kriyat Shema is seen on a much more profound level than we saw it at the beginning of the tractate. Rabbi Meir also uses the end of the tractate as an occasion to reflect back on the whole tractate. Rabbi Meir says, we've talked in this chapter, as the Tosefta did, the Mishnah, by the way, didn't, but the Tosefta in this chapter talked a lot about the blessings you recite over mitzvot. And Rabbi Meir concludes that discussion by saying that... All of the, all of the ritual acts described in Masechet Brachot form one broad framework. The framework is that no matter what I do, no matter where I go, mitzvot surround me everywhere. I don't. I, at no point am I without mitzvot. The, the the next passage elaborates on that more fully, but I'll leave that for for your own individual study. I'm always surrounded by mitzvah. and what is the mitzvah that accompanies me wherever I go? The recitation of a bracha. By reciting a bracha, I am turning every event, everything that occurs to me, into a mitzvah. So, Rabbi Meir also is weaving together all of the different themes of tractate brachot into one overarching framework. And the thought that I'd like to uh, uh, express as a penultimate conclusion to the tractate is that Rabbi Meir's way of concluding the tractate is really, in some ways, different from the Mishnah's way of concluding the tractate. The Mishnah concludes the tractate by saying, by, by making a theological observation. The observation is that Kriyachma is the unity of God and the love of God. And the love and unity of God are an overarching message that everything that I do, every prayer that I recite, and every bracha that I recite, express that overarching theme, which is embedded in Kriyachma, which opened up the tractate. Rabbi Meir concludes, not with the perception of God in all walks of life, but with meritorious acts in in all walks of life. It's how I live my life. Brachot, represent a way of living, not a perception of God. The Mishnah sees the whole tractate as focusing on my perception of God, my relationship with God. Rabbi Meir weaves the whole tractate around the theme of living a life of uh, of commandments, living a life of meritorious act, living in accordance with the will of God. The Mishnah is focused on my relationship to God, Rabbi Meir, in the Tosefta, is focused on living my life in accordance with God. So our brachot, a way of experiencing reality, a way of experiencing God in and through reality, or, or our brachot, a way of living a godly life, living a life in accordance with the Divine Will. Two very different perspectives on the same tractate, in the Mishnah and in the Tosefta. And my concluding thought is what the Talmud does surrounding this last Mishnah. It tells us a story about the death of Rabbi Akiva. Now, the death of Rabbi Akiva, if I were to ask you what's it about, what does it illustrate? I'm sure you would all say it illustrates the last Mishnah of the tractate. It illustrates how a person, even at the moment of, a, of an unjustified and very painful death of a martyr, even at that moment expressed his love and devotion to God in the most uh, impressive possible way. That's the last last Mishnah of the tractate. There's one detail I want to call your attention to. It's not often noticed. Why did Rabbi Akiva recite the Shema as he was being put to death? Anybody tell me the answer? It was the time for reciting Shema. Everybody thinks he recited the Shema because it was his moment of death. And in his moment of death, he wanted to reaffirm his commitment to God. This, the Talmud makes a, uh, a point of saying it, was, it happened to be the time for reciting Shema. And so Rabbi Akiva said, what a wonderful coincidence that precisely at my moment of death, it's the time for reciting Shema, and now I can... For the one and only time in my life, carry out an aspect of the mitzvah of Shema that you could, of course, never carry out otherwise, and that is to say Shema as you're dying. If it hadn't happened to coincide with the time of reciting Shema, he couldn't have done it. He wouldn't have been able to do it. You can't recite Shema in your moment of death and fulfill the mitzvah of Shema. But what was interesting is that Rabbi Akiva didn't want just to recite the words. He wanted to recite them as a fulfillment of the commandment of Shema. So the Talmud 2 weaves together the beginning and the end of the Tractate. Rabbi Akiva's death is the story in which you can see the unity of the beginning of the Tractate and the end of the Tractate. The devotion to the mitzvah of Kriyat Shema, the devotion to God as the one, as the one to whom you're devoted in all circumstances, no matter what, those two are one. Or in a certain sense, one might say, in the Talmud, the idea of the Mishnah and the idea of the Tosefta come together and become unified. Thank you very much.